Our passage this morning is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We'll start at verse 13 and read down through verse 23. Young Christians, young theologians, we're going to hear of a disciple named Simon who gets renamed this morning twice. Twice he'll be renamed. What are his two names that Jesus gives him? And what do the different names mean? And for the rest of us, as we're reading through this passage, think about what it is you feel about the church. And don't give just a Sunday school answer to that question. Don't answer in the way you feel you're supposed to answer. What do you really feel about the church? And then what does Jesus feel about it? And do they match up? And if they're different, what adjustments need to be made? This is the good news of Jesus Christ and his intent for the church he is building. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ that takes root in our hearts and does with us what it will, all to the glory of God and in the likeness of Jesus himself. May heaven rejoice over us and may hell shudder and curse and rage at it because that's the promise of the passage and that's what we want. And if you'll do these things and we will give you thanks, O Lord, and we ask it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. From the beginning, the church has been God's plan. From the beginning, it was the church that was to be filled with God's goodness and the church that was supposed to celebrate His glory. And fill the earth up with these things. The first church was two people in a garden. And the church today spreads across the globe. 
But for as long as there have been people to receive God's revelation and His redemption, there has been a church. In the Old Testament, the church was simple. Largely national, largely ethnic. It was anticipatory. Looking ahead to something more. In the New Testament and our time following, the church is more fully revealed in the finished work of Christ. But there has always been a church. And there has always been one reason for the church to exist in the world. The church is living proof that willing grace has overcome willing disgrace. The church is living proof that hell has been beaten. Which is not to say that there aren't times when the church feels like hell because that's certainly been true for us all. We've either felt it or we will. We've caused others to feel it or we will. But that doesn't diminish the fact The church is hell's defeat. So let's orient ourselves on the map of the gospel story. Jesus comes bringing his kingdom. This is how God will rule over sinners. He will judge their sin with holiness that misses nothing. And he will love them with a grace that withholds from them nothing. And since His kingdom is not of this earth, the people who live in the kingdom of Jesus won't fit here either. They'll stick out like foreigners. Then the apostles, the sent out ones, the twelve are sent into the world. They're commissioned by Jesus to go throughout the nations, continuing to spread the kingdom of the gospel. And then the apostles die off. And they did not replace themselves. There were no second generation apostles. So what did they leave behind? They left in their place the church. The church of shadowy truthfulness in the Old Testament grows into the church of full truth. The church of the full light of the gospel in the New Testament. The church is the continuing presence of Jesus who ascended into heaven here on earth. The church is the continuing presence of the ascendant Jesus here on earth. The church endowed with the Spirit of Jesus is to speak what Jesus spoke and move like He moved and touch like He touched and do the kinds of things that Jesus Himself did. It's simple enough, but somehow we get all twisted up as to what the church is supposed to be about. At various times, the church has thought its work was to rule nations and continents politically. It's an error we still fall into, and church history is filled with the damage of that mistake. At other times, the church has believed its job was to disapprove of culture 
hopefully, last week we did an adequate job of rejecting that view and driving it out of our minds and our hearts at least for a few years. We'll have to revisit it because we always do. But at least for the time, maybe we've done a fair enough job of putting that idea at bay. The church has at times believed its job is to hide us, Rapunzel-like, away from the world. But that doesn't seem to match at all the way our Jesus was in the world. The question of the church is not a new question. T.S. Eliot puzzled over it in his poem, The Rock. I journeyed to London, the time-kept city where the river flows with foreign flotations. And there I was told we have too many churches and too few chop houses. There I was told, let the vicars retire. Men do not need the church in the place where they work, but where they spend their Sundays. In the city, we need no bells. Let them wake in the suburbs. I journeyed to the suburbs, and there I was told we toil for six days, and on the seventh we must motor to the coast. If the weather is foul, we stay at home and read the papers. In industrial districts, there I was told of economic laws. In the pleasant countryside, there it seemed that the country now is only fit for picnics, and the church does not seem to be wanted in country or in suburb and in the town, only for important weddings. We misunderstand the church because we misunderstand Jesus. If Jesus was the great moral teacher, then the church is merely ceremonial. We don't need it for much. Maybe the odd wedding and the funeral on occasion when somber words are required. But on Sundays, we can drive to the countryside, sleep late, stay home, read the papers over coffee if the weather is bad. If Jesus is just the great rabbi, a little more religiously touched than the rest of us, uncomfortably, spiritually wired, then we can get some otherworldly wisdom from him in sermonettes. You know, the kind we put on refrigerator magnets that we barely take notice of as we reach past them into the icebox. And we can take his wisdom and splice it into our lives on our way to the bank or the office or the country club or the mall or the PTA meeting. But if Jesus is the Son of God, all bets are off. If He is Messiah, who came to make us fully human in His own perfectly worshipful humanity, who came to make us the new community in His body and blood, more self-denying, more others-loving than we ever knew possible with a version of love that shatters all our far too conservative and childish notions of the stuff, then probably what he has to say about the church, which he creates from his word out of himself, is going to be pretty revolutionary too. Notice in the passage that Jesus invites misunderstandings of who he is. 
Who do the people say that I am? He asks the disciples. He's entirely unafraid of being mistaken because he always answers mistakes regarding his identity with self-revelation. And his self-revelation is always clear and confusing because it's more than we expect, but it's never more than we need. And his self-revelation is always generous and demanding because Jesus gives all of himself to have all of us. And after a string of these speculative views as to his identity, Jesus turns to his disciples and puts the same question to them. But who do you say that I am? Oh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because you didn't figure this out on your own. You didn't put this together. It was given to you. This was revealed to you. And Jesus changes Simon's name. It has much less to do with Simon's character and much more to do with the character of what Simon just confessed. From now on, I'm going to call you Peter, Rock, because you spoke the gospel truth. And on the rock of the gospel, whenever you or one of these others or one who comes after you, believing the very same, speaks what you just spoke, I will build my church and hell doesn't have a prayer in standing against it. Here from the mouth of Jesus himself is the truth that you are least likely to believe. From the mouth of Jesus himself, here is the truth that you probably do not believe at all. Hell's worst nightmare is the church. You keep hell up at night. Pacing the floor, wringing its hands. In New England, there's this whole folklore around what locals sometimes call devil wrestling. In the early history of the region, there are these stories of Satan disrupting worship services and pastors getting into brawls with him, fist fighting Satan. One of the stories involves George Whitfield, the English evangelist, the major player of the Great Awakening, the gospel revival that took place in the colonies. The legend has it that Whitfield was preaching in the first church of Ipswich, Massachusetts on September 30th, 1740. That much is true. We can put Whitfield in that church on that date. But this legend grew up around his appearance at the church. And the story goes that in the middle of Whitfield's sermon, Satan appeared in the sanctuary with a flash and a bang. Goat legs, tail, horns. Whitfield was unimpressed with the theatrics of the appearance. And he leapt from the pulpit and tackled Satan. And they punched and clawed and bit and rolled down the aisle, out the church doors. Everybody in the congregation got up and followed into the churchyard. Whitfield got to his feet and squared off again, and they fought and fought, and Whitfield was backed up 
on the outside of the church wall, to stand on the perched, pitched roof of the church. And there the fist fight continued. Satan backed him up the steeple to the pinnacle. It was true that Whitfield had this amazing voice. He could preach to crowds of 10,000 in an open-air field, and everyone could hear him. So the legend has it that the cross-eyed preacher opened his mouth and let out something like the roar of a lion, and Satan was sent hurling hooves over horns to the ground below. And when he landed, he left a smoldering hoofprint in a rock. They say it's still there outside the church doors. Whitfield climbed down from the steeple, brushed himself off, everybody went back inside, and the sermon was finished. Now, here's what Whitfield writes in his journal for September 30th, 1740. Preached at Ipswich at about 10 in the morning to some thousands. The Lord gave me freedom, and there was a great melting in the congregation. In other words, it's a fiction. I hope you put that together on your own. There was no fist fight with Satan on the morning of September the 30th. Here's another fiction. It's not pastors who fight against the forces of hell. It's the church. And there's another fiction too. This also is a fiction according to the way Jesus tells it. It's not so much that Satan sabotages the work of the church in the world. It's more accurate to say that the church sabotages what Satan is doing in the world. And you need to believe that emphasis in that order so you can be the church of Jesus' heart. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hell did everything it could do to shut the ministry of Jesus in the church out of the world. When Jesus came to build his church, hell tried to trick him out of it. Satan met Jesus in the nothingness of the desert and tempted him for 40 days. If Satan could get Jesus to sin just once... One wrong thought, one wrong emotional glimmer, one wrong word or an unbelieving, unfaithful deed in a fit of weakness, in hunger of the stomach or hunger of the identity, then the whole work of redeeming sinners was over. It could not take place. But when Jesus refused in the desert to fall to sin, from that time on, everywhere Jesus went, from village to village, demons came out to meet Him and oppose Him and contest Him. In the ultimate prophetic activity, Jesus kept casting them out like outlaws thrown through saloon doors in old westerns. Demons were cast out All over Israel. And because hell couldn't ruin the ministry of Jesus, it tries, it tries to derail the ministry of the church. And hell has a thick tactical manual. Hell uses persecutions, beatings, confiscations of property, 
disownings from family and friends. You remember Gail Jones. She was converted in our midst out of the Judaism of her youth and her family held a funeral for her. She was dead from that day forward. Imprisonments, martyrdoms. Hell tries to make following Jesus so painful that the church gives up on it altogether. But the pleasures of following Jesus are deeper for the church than the pains that all the enemies of Jesus throw against us. Hell tries to make the church ridiculous and silly and voiceless in culture and society. This may be the most effective tactic. Or hell turns the members of the church against one another for petty jealousies, which is what they usually are. Rarely do we ever argue over issues that matter, issues that are important because hearts and lives are riding on them. We're just like the disciples of Jesus, arguing over Who's most important in the kingdom? Who should sit at his right hand? Who should have the good jobs in the kingdom? Who should die first? We're just like the disciples. Because we want to know, like they did, who Jesus loves best. There are plenty of ways that hell fights against the church. And only one way Jesus fights back Through his church, he smashes the gates of hell with the rock, the gospel, and the gates fold. In the gospel, every apparent weakness turns out to be a hell-crushing strength. The Savior coming as a baby, not a warrior. An infant, not an avenger, coming in tenderness, not in terror. Running after people who are running away. When the infant cry went up from a manger in Bethlehem, there was a terrible clanging because hell's gates were being battered as they'd never been before. When a cross was set up outside Jerusalem and the life-tearing weight of the law, broken and unkept, was hanged from it. There was an awful clatter heard for those who hear by faith. When the stone was rolled away from the mouth of a judged innocent's tomb, and the sleeping guards heard nothing, underneath it there was an earth-shaking racket because hell's gates had just been hammered from their hinges. When love came to earth for sinners instead of judgment. When forgiveness pursued us instead of vengeance. When gross guilt was answered with generous grace. Infernal locks broke beyond repair. Hell doesn't stand a chance in itself of ever recovering. The most surprising piece of the passage is that Jesus is not just building His church to fight against hell, but Jesus is building His church to fight against hell and win. What Jesus throws against the gates 
is a devastating rock. Not just the gospel in concept, not the idea of the gospel, but the gospel at work in you. The gospel being accomplished in you. There's no defense. There is absolutely no counterattack for that. And that explains Jesus' scolding of Peter. Because, as Jesus talks about charging the gate in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. As Jesus begins explaining all of this, Peter imposes his own will over the will of God. I don't know, maybe it was because Jesus had just given to Peter the keys of the kingdom, and he doesn't know what that means. But he's not bashful about giving them a try anyway, and he tries to lock down all this crazy talk from Jesus. Maybe it was from Peter's own misunderstanding of what the keys meant. Maybe he could redirect what Jesus was thinking on this point. Maybe that's why he speaks out of turn as he speaks out in verse 22. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. Nothing like this. A dying Messiah? Nobody's interested in a Messiah like that. A dead Messiah is a non-Messiah. A risen Messiah? We don't even know what that means. We don't know what you're talking about. Far be it from you. This shall never happen to you. And right there, right there, hell has never felt safer. Right there, its gates have never seemed so strong. And Jesus says, Listen, Peter. If I don't do this, you will be far from me. In fact, since this is what I was sent to do, and since this is what I have come to do, and you're standing in the way of it, you are no longer the rock. You are a rock slide. You're an obstacle. Get behind me so that I can move past you. You've thrown the fight and you've switched sides. And Peter gets another new nickname, no longer called the one who will be used to smash hell's strength, but his new name means one who is all about hell's program. And that's just it. The next group of verses, 24 through 28, confirm the point. If you take the cross out of the work and purpose of Jesus, if you take the cross out of us, if you take us away from the supremacy of the cross, we are no longer the church. We're hell's helpers. There's no other way to read this passage. None. Jesus does not say to Peter, Peter, you're somewhat counterproductive to what I'm intending to do with my church at the moment. I'd appreciate it if you'd step up your game a bit. Jesus says to Peter, you are now enemy. You are now against everything that I'm about. When we leave the cross, when the church turns its back on the cross, the church is not the church. 
And by leaving the cross, turning our backs on it, I don't mean that we fail to have a picture of the cross printed on the cover of our bulletin. I don't mean that we don't have a large sculpture of a cross hanging behind a pulpit in a building someday. I don't mean cut out crosses pushed into our yards like lawn signs at Easter. I mean the cross in our hearts, reworking us elementally. The cross in everything we're about. The cross in everything we say. The cross in everything we do. A cross scaled to the size of all my sin and all the judgment that should fall on me because of it. A cross that enormous with a Savior nailed in my place is the only thing that can make me a new person. A cross filled with all of my sin and filled up at the same time with my saving substitute, a redeeming stand-in, lets my old heart die and a new heart is born. The cross is what our marriages are crying for. You know what the problem with your marriage is? There's only one problem with your marriage. You. And you know what the solution is? There's only one. The cross of Jesus beautifying you with grace you've never even dreamed of for yourself. Our personalities are dying to have more of the cross. I hate to tell you this, You're not as lovable and as likable as you think. But with more of the cross, you can be made more of a delight to more people. Our parenting weeps for the cross. Your kids are never going to please you because that's not what they were created for. But maybe, just maybe they can be pleased with Jesus as they feel more of the cross in you. Our singleness needs the cross. Your problem isn't that you're unmarried. Your problem is that the love of Jesus isn't enough love for you. You will never be satisfied in the love of another person if you can't be satisfied in the love of Christ. Our empty nest syndrome aches for the cross. Your kids are gone. And as they've left, suddenly you're informed. You didn't get along with them as well as you'd thought. Your relationship wasn't quite what you had believed it to be. And now you look across the table at a spouse. And possibly, possibly, you say to yourself, this is what my life is going to be. I'm going to be married to you. The answer to that ache is not the fake importance you fill your life with in busyness. Busyness isn't a spiritual attribute. More activity only masks the heart and the cross masks nothing. Busyness is not Jesus' ministry to you, but probably sitting still and silent is because that's where you have to face your heart and what Jesus wants to do with it. The cross is the end of our irresponsibility. I have nothing to run from or avoid if I'm loved so fully as this. 
The cross is the end of our lying. Jesus knows the whole truth about me and loves me anyway. I don't need my lies anymore. The cross makes obsolete our attention whoring. We whore for attention. But do I really believe that there is a deeper, more intimate attention than a Savior who loves me with a cross? And if not, then why do I troll for it? Why do I drag the gutter for it? The cross breaks the stolen authority of our idols. It ends their forged claims to us with three nails, our nasty, improvised, ad hoc saviors that never give us what we want, and that's why we're their hostages. Body image, money, a mistress, a fling, or just the fantasy of it, the thrill in a fantasy, or shopping and success, or gluttony with other Christians and calling it fellowship and ministry when it's really only still just gluttony or forbidden pixels beamed onto our computer monitors. They never lift our hearts because they don't dismantle our immaturities. They only feed on them and amplify them and they bury us underneath and leave us for dead and the cross only is what digs us out. And the cross is what your neighbors hiding behind locked doors of private desperations hope someone will come knocking with. Uh, When we are explicit about our need for the cross and Jesus' ministry to us through his cross Hell braces itself for impact. And when we make our lives and condition of our hearts about anything else, hell coasts. It's smooth, devilish sailing from here. So listen. Can you hear the clanging? It depends on what you came here for this morning. If you came here for busyness, or if you came here to feel good about how you've managed your life, how you've been religious, how you've kept all the rules, if you came here to be smug and to judge other people, if you came here to add to your self-satisfied of knowledge, if you came here to register a complaint against Jesus and tell him what he's not doing for you, what he ought to be doing for you, what he owes you, then you likely hear nothing. But if you came here hopefully and urgently needing to be reworked, redefined, renamed in the gospel of Jesus, then under the liturgy and woven through all the songs, and in the words of the table, this is my body, this is my blood for you, you are new and whole in me, underneath the good mornings, and the sincere statements of may the peace of Christ be with you, not some cheap, flimsy peace, circumstantially derived. And you should hear the sound of hateful iron giving way. That's what the church is supposed to be. 
That's why Jesus is building his church. Sixty years ago, there was an Anglican priest who was assigned to the parish church in Cornwall, England. And for years, nobody came to his church. Twenty years to be exact. On empty Sundays, when nobody showed up, he would write things in the guest registry, like, no fog, no rain, no wind, no congregation. Some Sundays, he'd just lock the church doors and walk down the road and join the worship service at the Methodist chapel. But eventually, He cut out cardboard figures resembling people. And he seated them in the pews. And he gave them names. And created pretend lives for them. And Sunday after Sunday, he preached to them. And he served them the sacraments. And he pronounced forgiveness over them. When we let go of the cross and cling for dear life to other gospels that seem to us more comforting, we're a church of cardboard cutouts, no threat. But when we hold on to the cross for ourselves and each other, hell is a fortress of wet cardboard. I will build my church out of you, Jesus says. And I will build you up on the immovable rock of the gospel. And good luck to hell in the face of it, though it won't do any good. Ah, maybe someday our city and heaven and earth and hell too will see Jesus doing all of that us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Someday soon, Lord Jesus, give to us the privilege of being such a threat to the enemy that the enemy has no choice but to increase our pains to try to turn us away from the gospel. Strange thing to pray, we know. But to have so much of the gospel that we would be considered enemy number one would be a great privilege. And in the face of more discomfort and pain for the sake of Jesus, we know we'll have more gospel to answer it by. And for that, we'll be grateful too. We ask that you would do exactly what you promise in this passage. Too long we thought of the church as something necessary but undefinable. And really when we get right down to it, ineffective and silly. We begin to believe about your church what the world around us believes about it. And you never believe these things. You have one rock, the gospel at work in our lives individually and all together and with that rock the gates of hell enemy powers cannot stand we pray for more of your grace and more of your glory for ourselves and for those around us and if you'll do these things as always we will praise you 
Now feed us with bread and wine and give to us the assurance once again that hell fights, but it is not strong enough to withstand the strength of your gospel in us and through us. And in that assurance, allow us to minister to our own hearts. Oh, how rarely we preach the gospel to our own hearts and find comfort in Jesus. To do ministry in our own homes. Our own homes are battlefields. In our neighborhoods. In our city. In our church. Oh, Lord, give to us the assurance in bread and wine that though there is corruption in us and in our world, the Lord Jesus has overcome it all in his own strength. Now it is time for grace and glory to be seen. Show it in us. And now, church, along with the church in every age, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.